Well, good morning again. I just wanted to hear that one more time, really. Uh, this will be the last time I'm with you for a while, so I wanted to say uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here, uh, speak to you so many times, teach Bible class, and just be encouraged by all of you. We, uh, me, on behalf of my whole family, we, we love being here. We love seeing all of you and your smiling faces and your, uh, your good mornings and your encouragement. It's been uh, so much help to us personally, that you've really helped build us up, and I just want to say thank you very much, and we look forward to being with you again once in a while in the future. Uh, I hope uh, Jet does a good job on Wednesday and Sunday. I hope that uh, maybe will work out for everything, and the church here will continue to grow uh, in spirit and in number. I want to thank uh, everyone who participated in the service uh, today, uh, you know, Carl, I appreciate you leading singing. You always do a great job. Jeff, uh, really well thought out, thankful for your prayer. Uh, and, and Clay, even even announcements, good job on, on that. I, that's my least favorite job in all of the church is, is when I'm tasked with announcements. I try to avoid it like the plague. So I, I, uh, I would much rather preach than do announcements. So I know that not everybody's like that, but I, I'm like that. So. Uh, I want to talk to us today, uh, bring this lesson to you about the Bible being from God, and just, it's a real foundational idea here. The reasoning being that even well-seasoned Christians, Christians who have been Christians their whole life, can sometimes have periods where we struggle, where, where we question our faith. I want to ground us in that it's okay to struggle, it's okay to question things. God expects that. That's why God gave us the Bible the way he gave it to us. I, I believe he put so many things in there that convince us that this is indeed the word of God. And for that reason, we can have the faith that we need to know, look, God has told us what we need to do, how we need to live. And we can rely on this book for everything that we need. He's given us everything that pertains to uh, salvation and life in Him. So when we struggle, uh, we can rely on those things. When we question some things that we've been taught and, and really wonder if this is really the way. Maybe we've hit some stumbling blocks or roadblocks or health crises or we've lost someone. Whatever it is that we're going through, God has the answers to those things. And so this is, this is faith building in that sense. And as we look at the Bible is from God, and as we think about, okay, what is it that convinces me that the Bible is truly from God, that this is God's word, that it's infallible, that it has the answers that I need in it? And we, if I went around the room, there would be many answers to that question. For me, it's, it's all sorts of things. To me, the most convincing argument is the interconnectivity of the Bible, how amazing it is that all these authors from all this period of time weave together a message that's so perfect and so intertwined. And all these fulfilled prophecies, all of these sorts of things are very convincing. But what I want to look at today is the fact that the Bible, while the authors of the Bible, of course, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were in the Middle East, and they were surrounded by these cultures that got all of these things wrong that we're going to talk about today. 
medical science wrong, and astronomy. Those are the two things we're going to look at the most. They just consistently get all of these things wrong. And yet the Bible never does that. There are people in the Bible who get it wrong. But the Bible never teaches anything that's wrong. And to do with medical science or to do with astronomy. I find that to be really interesting because if you look... You really got to turn this thing on to do that. But if you look at ancient cultures, they're surrounded by these people, the Egyptians, the Syrians, all of these people get all of this wrong. Everything has to do with rituals and incantations and amulets. Uh, some of the medicines that they prescribe are, are taking feces, like dung of camels and rubbing it into your wound. Uh, you wonder why they died of infections, uh, things along those lines. Uh, they had this idea of what they call the doctrine of signatures. What does that mean? Well, if you were to get stabbed to heal you, they might find a leaf that looks like a knife. Uh, and they'll, they'll put that on there. That'll, that'll probably fix it because it looks like whatever the wound is. A lot of the different medicines had to do with this idea of just take something that looks like whatever it is, and that'll help fix it. They believe that demons caused a lot of their ailments. They looked to astrology, to reading the stars and the signs and the comets and meteors and all of that as a way to tell the future or a way to tell how the gods favor you or don't. And they look towards what we call augury or signs. They're looking at the flight of birds, or this bird landed on top of this statue at this time, or this building, it flew from this direction to this direction. There's a great Andy Griffith episode about that, where Barney is riding on a horse. I don't know if you've ever into Andy Griffith, but he's dressed in black, and he rides the wrong way, and that's a good omen, and then he rides the other way, that's a bad omen, right? They had all these ideas about omens and signs. And they even do things like liver divination, so they'll They'll do these incantations over a, a bull, and then they'll kill the bull, and they'll look at the liver and, and read the spots on the liver, and that will tell you what your future holds. Uh, all sorts of, of kind of what we would think of as kind of crazy ideas. Uh, and you come to two conclusions. Uh, the two conclusions are that the secular medical sciences at that time were just filled with inaccuracies, all kinds of, of things that would not only not help you, but off, oftentimes would lead to your death, uh, make whatever it is worse. And then the second conclusion is that so-called inspired works, all these other things, things like the Quran, all these things that claim inspiration, that they're also filled with these sorts of inaccuracies. And yet the Bible avoids all of these errors. So the Bible is writing at the same time, in the same locations as many of these people. And we see the people being led astray by all sorts of things uh, that surrounded them, worshiping after other gods and, and following their ways and practicing divination. But God consistently teaches against these things. And one of those things is, in fact, divination. This idea that you can stare to a crystal ball and and figure out what uh, what your future holds. God consistently teaches against this. In Ezekiel 12, 24, he said, For there shall be no more any vain vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. 
He says, stop doing this. Uh, this flattering divination, this is the idea that if you give the, the priest or whoever it is enough money, then they will give you a, a good reading. But if you don't give them enough money, you're going to get a bad reading. Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall be not found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter pass through the fire, that's worshiping Baal and sacrificing your children, or that uses divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch. God says don't do these things. Don't follow after this. Regarding omens, Jeremiah 10.2 said, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and not be, be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. He says if, if a comet appears in the sky, it doesn't portent anything. He's not, it's not telling your future. It's not a sign of a good thing or a bad thing. He says stop, walk, stop following after these things and trust in God. Put your faith and your hope in Him. Other medical things that are interesting are, is the idea of hand washing. Uh, this guy, Semmelweis, he pioneered hand washing in the 1850s. He was a, a doctor in a maternity ward, and the mothers and the babies kept dying in the maternity ward. And he said, well, that's a bad thing. I need to figure out why that is. And he tried several different things. They didn't work. And then he found that the doctors, before they would go deliver the babies, they were often working on cadavers of people who had died in different ways and not washing their hands or anything. They didn't understand about germs and germ theory back then. So they said, well, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe they shouldn't be working on dead, diseased bodies right before they go and deliver a baby. Uh, so let's, let's wash our hands before we do that and see what if there's a change. There was a huge change. Mothers and babies hardly ever died when they started washing their hands. Uh, so that was one uh, of the things that revolutionized this idea of, hey, before we perform surgery, before we do it, we should probably wash our hands. Well, what's interesting to me is in Numbers 19.18, the Bible had already come up with this in the Old Testament. The Bible said it's essentially there's a recipe for soap, right here in the verse before, in verse 18 and 19, it says, A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tin and upon all the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that touched a bone or one slain or one dead or in a grave. It says, If you've touched something unclean, a clean person needs to make this soap water and wash you with it and wash everything that you've touched with it. It's essentially a disinfectant. The Bible already did that. They didn't understand about germs. How would they know to do that unless God told them? Another of the Levitical laws, this idea of the disposal of waste. You can see this uh, in Deuteronomy 23 and in Leviticus 17. God commands them to put their waste outside of the camp. Now we would say, well, of course, they would just do that naturally. That's not true. In Rome, they didn't do that. They just threw it on the streets. They disposed of, of all sorts of waste. Uh, it's true in Greece as well. It's true of many ancient cultures. It's not just a natural thing to throw your garbage and take the extra effort of putting it outside the camp. Uh, but God prescribed that. Another one is quarantine. And we learned all about quarantine during, during COVID. Uh, of course, by this time, we knew that that's a good idea. But God also said in Leviticus 13 and 14 
that if someone has a disease like leprosy, you need to put them outside the camp. They don't need to be mixed in with everyone. This idea of quarantine is something that God also came up with. Again, even though they didn't know, the people didn't know about germs and about communicable disease, God prescribed this for them. What about the food laws that are in in place? Of course, we all know that that Jews are not allowed to eat pork. But if we look at the food laws that are contained in Leviticus, there were clean and unclean animals. And he talked about land animals, only those that have a split hoof and that chew the cud were permitted. That's Leviticus 11.3. With water animals, then the only ones are fish that have... Uh, fins and scales. They were approved. That's Leviticus 11.9. Birds of prey were prohibited. Uh, Pork and catfish were prohibited. They were not allowed. Uh, Clean animals even were regulated. You were required to not eat until the blood had been drained. You're not allowed to eat the blood. Uh, We say, oh, that's kind of gross. I wouldn't want to eat the blood anyway. Cultures around them believe that if you drank the blood of an animal, that you would kind of gain the spirit power and you'd be able to tell the future better. Things along those lines. Uh, That's what was surrounding them, and yet they avoid all of this. Diseased animals or animals that had died naturally or been killed by a wild animal were not allowed to be eaten. And doctors have said that this would go far toward preventing the incidence of food-borne polio, encephalitis, the enteretic fever, food poisoning, and parasitic worms. Civilized man, after centuries of experience, has come to approximately the same conclusion. Uh, The exclusions were extremely valuable, such as excluding dogs and cats and fish without scales. Fish without scales, uh, all the poisonous fish have no scales. Uh, Oysters, which still cause problems for people, Sometimes today, in modern times, it caused uh, outbreaks of typhoid and, and other infectious disease, as well as food poisoning. Uh, and we've, it was said that we find no classification as logical as this in any of the cuneiform lists of fauna or ritual taboos. So m- the Mosaic dietary laws are unique in all of the ancient world, uh, and that they all had a purpose that's to make it make the people healthier and avoid all sorts of diseases. What about sexually transmitted diseases? We see incidents of syphilis and gonorrhea all the way back into ancient times. It was first recorded uh, syphilis in the 15th century, uh, but there are, are certainly cases dating back earlier than that. Gonorrhea can be traced into antiquity. Uh, Paul declares that fornication was a sin that harmed the physical body. That's 1 Corinthians 6.18. Syphilis can lead to all sorts of problems, including insanity, uh, including the inability to control one's limbs and bodily functions. Uh, As late as the 15th century, it was put forward that these venereal diseases were caused by a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, that's That's what they believed all the way up until the 15th century. Uh, A look at some of the remedies, which you you can 
kind of see here what's going on with them in that picture. Uh, they would not eat peas because peas might have worms with wings in them. They anointed people with mercury. At least you wouldn't die of the disease, I guess. Die for mercury poisoning instead. They would place patients in large stoves like you see here. And they put hot coals under them. And they give them starvation diets. And they try to sweat it out of them. They would feed them ostrich egg and pine turpentine. I'm not sure that any of these things helped in, in very many uh, ways. The Bible, on the other hand, isolates the cause, establishes effective preventative measures. What's the best way to avoid these problems? What's an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure? Right. The Bible correctly predicts the results if these things are not followed. I want to talk to you about this guy, Carl, Carl Zimmerman. I may have mentioned him before. He's an emeritus professor at Harvard University, which means he got all the way up the ranks uh, of being a professor at Harvard until he was such a great professor that they bestow upon him the emeritus status. This is something that they basically are saying, you have done such a good job as a professor that we're giving you this even higher honor. Uh, And he published this work called Family and Civilization, And that was his master work. This is all of his research and sociology throughout all of his life. He studied ancient cultures and civilizations. And he said, I have come up with a list of eight different things that show the collapse of a civilization. So he looked at Rome. He looked at the different civilizations in Greece, uh, medieval and even modern Europe and the United States. And he identified eight common factors that lead to the destruction of a civilization. And you know what he found? This is a guy who is not religious. He is not grinding any kind of religious acts. He is just saying, this is what leads to the collapse of civilization. This is number one, marriage loses its sacredness. It was frequently broken by divorce. Number two, traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony was lost and alternative forms and definitions of marriage arise. And traditional marriage vows are replaced by individual marriage contracts. Any of this sound familiar so far? All right, number three, the feminist movement appears, and women lose interest in childbearing and mothering and prefer to pursue power and influence. Number four, public disrespect for parents and authority... See what I'm dealing with here? Uh, Public disrespect for parents and authority in general increases. Number five, therefore, juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion accelerates. Number six, people with traditional marriages refuse to accept family responsibilities. That's talking about taking care of the elderly, uh, taking care of your children. Number seven, desire for and acceptance of adultery grows. And number eight, increased tolerance for sexual perversions of all kinds, particularly homosexuality, with a resultant increase in sex-related crime. These are the eight things he identified as collapsing Rome, collapsing Greek, collapsing medieval European, and working on collapsing American civilization. Isn't that interesting? The Bible teaches against... All of these things. 
Is the Bible unique in this approach? It is. If you look at other religions, many world religions have no restraints on adherence as far as sexual practices are concerned. Shintoism has barely any moral code at all. Hinduism, infidelity on the part of the husband, is neither rare nor considered worthy of moral censure. In the Muslim world, and I know you know this, women are considered almost property. Uh, and they're regarded as, as almost men's playthings. Outside the married state, the husband is allowed to cohabit with an unlimited number of slaves. Every major culture of ancient times, from the Egyptians to the Romans, was lax in its rules about sexual conduct. And religious prostitution was a way of life in both Egypt, in Greece, and in Rome. And promiscuity was common in Greece and Rome. There are other religions that take it to the other extreme. In Buddhism, they encourage no sexual contact at all. If that was followed, if everyone became Buddhist and followed that, we wouldn't have people around for very long. Uh, it would be We would become extinct. The Bible chooses the course that is both healthy and safe and beneficial to society and to the individuals in society. The Bible is unique. I want to talk a little bit about astronomy now and some of the things that the Bible gets right. There are all these false ideas in the ancient world about the place of the earth. And in fact, it even goes so far as the early Catholic Church, which believed that the earth was the center of the universe. The Chaldeans thought that the the universe was completely enclosed in a a kind of half dome, and a wall surrounded both the earth and the sea, and a dome of hard metal was thought to be the sky. Earth was given a larger role in the universe in almost all of these civilizations than is actually true. Earth was believed to be bigger than the sun and the moon and the stars combined. The earth is much bigger than all of those things, is what they believed. The earth was seen oftentimes as a large, flat plain at the bottom of the universe. All men, before the time of the Greeks, made the assumption that the earth was flat, said Isaac Asimov. Movement of heavenly bodies and appearances of phenomena such as comets, meteorites, and eclipses Eclipses led to the pseudoscience of astrology. And if you think that's done away with, whenever you go to the supermarket and you're checking out, there's like five guides on your horoscopes and your astrology. Read your signs, you know. They, they still are a number of people that follow that idea. The Egyptians believed that stars were the souls of dead Egyptians who obtained deity status. And Rome had that same idea. Uh, You'll often see comets and shooting stars on the back of coins of, say, Augustus or Julius Caesar, showing that they they have been divinely put in the position that they're in. Uh, the Egyptians thought of the universe as a large rectangular box with the earth lying at the bottom. Uh, the skies were a vaulted ceiling held in place by four giant mountain peaks. The oceans viewed as a great river, And the sun's riding around on it in a boat. And every time the sun goes down, it's passing behind a mountain. Uh, Ancient Greece, they're the ones that figured out that the earth is round. So kudos to them. That's great. But they really got off on the earth's rotation and all of that 
many of them thought that uh, the universe revolved around the earth and it was small enough to roll all the way around the earth, the whole universe, every 24 hours. Uh, they believed that the sun was a red-hot iron and, the, and uh, only somewhat larger than the moon, uh, and heaven is a vault of stones. Uh, the same guy said that the planets were flat and that the moon was inhabited. I'm not sure who he thought it was inhabited by, but he thought it was inhabited, and that meteorite, meteorites come from the sun. Uh, they had all kinds of strange beliefs, uh, and this includes people like Aristotle, Plato, all of those guys that we've, we've heard of from ancient Greece, they all believe these sorts of things. Carl Sagan said they never had an inkling of what comets really were. Uh, the Chinese studied comets, and they actually kept the best records in antiquity of ancient comets. You see some of the records there of all the different comets, noting different characteristics of it, but they believed uh, that these were signs that would signify calamity. Uh, or, if they were a certain kind of comet, like if they had two tails, then it might be good omen. They, they try to do things like that. Non-biblical writings have the same types of problems. The Quran, for instance, it's centuries newer than some of these other writings, but they still contain all sorts of errors. They took the ideas of Aristotle and Ptolemy, and the Quran speaks of several seven literal heavens in which all things are said to move. And that they hold lamps up there. And the main purpose is to be darted at the devils to keep them from moving from heaven to heaven. Uh, That's the idea that's found in the Quran. Uh, The heavens have a roof. The stars serve as guardians for those on earth. Muhammad wrote that the sun sets in a sea of black mud every day. The Quran also claims the distance from the earth to the edge of the seven heavens was 50,000 years. Not really a distance, but I guess that's how long it takes you to get there. Uh, Hinduism has some of my favorite uh, inaccuracies. It includes the idea that there are these oceans that are in the different heavens, and that we're in one of those that's the oceans filled with water, but some of the other ones, one of them has honey, uh, which I'd like that one. I love honey. Uh, Some of them are filled with milk, uh, those kinds of ideas, Um, and that The earth rests on the back of four elephants that's resting on the back of a tortoise that's swimming around. And I'm not sure what the tortoise is resting on. I guess it's just swimming around. But that's my favorite of all. Uh, I just really like, I'm not sure why they picked elephants and why the elephants are standing on the back of a tortoise. Uh, But that's that's one of my favorite, uh, favorite ones for sure. Obviously with so many errors... These things are the productions of men. Uh, Errors found their way into countless extra-biblical writings, but they're missing from the text of the Bible. The Bible stands in stark contrast to all of this. We think about the night sky, we think about the stars. The Bible makes correct statements about them, such as Genesis 15:5. Can you count the stars? Genesis 22:17. It's like sand. On a beach, Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-two says the stars are countless. Obviously, these are not scientific statements, but they're correct in their, their analogy that man cannot count the stars. Uh, there were star surveys being carried out as late as 1932, where they were trying to label and list all the known stars. 
And prior to the invention of the telescope, it was commonly believed that there were just a finite number of stars. Several different Greeks tried to make a, a list of all of them. Ptolemy did that. The Chinese listed 2,500 main stars, uh, not including those which the sailors observe. It says, of the very small stars, there are 11,520. That's what the Chinese observed. Of course, we know there are many more stars than that. The Bible avoids these mistakes. The references to God calling the stars by name imply that the stars are not infinite. There is a finite number of stars, but they're too numerous for man to count, but God knows them all. He knows them by their name. That's Psalm 147.4 and Isaiah 40.26. The Bible correctly assigns the role of light producer to the sun and not to the moon. Uh, in Isaiah 30.26, he calls the, the sun the hot one, and the moon is Lebhenna, the cool one. Biblical writers were also correct in stating that the stars emit sound. This was not known until the 20th century. But in Job 38.7, it's poetic, yes, but it's true. It says the stars sing. Uh, they make, they emit noise. Uh, in 1932, Carl Jansky first noted the sounds as static, and he was trying to rid uh, his instruments of that. By 1942, U.S. Army scientists felt that they were the results of Nazi jamming devices. Uh, but in fact, they were caused by the stars. Job 38:31, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Most constellations are not permanent. Over thousands of years, the stars are moving in different directions, and so they will kind of come apart, the constellations, and they'll change over time. But not the bands of Orion, not Orion's belt. Those stars are all moving in the same direction, so they stay the same throughout the millennia. And the Bible pointed that out in Job. Ancient people, on the whole, believed in an eternal universe. It wasn't until 1865 that Rudolf Klaus Clausius first advanced proof that the universe was not eternal, but degenerating. This helped form the basis of the first and second law of thermodynamics. Laws Einstein said were the only two theories that he thought would never be disproven. That's that energy, all the energy in the universe is already here. It changes form, but it can't be created or destroyed. We have all the energy that we're going to have in all the universe. And the second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. The idea that everything is kind of winding down. This speaks against evolution, by the way. And we see it everywhere. We see it in our own bodies. We were talking about that just a little bit ago. Over time, our eyesight changes. It degenerates. Everything, bridges, everything that we build, does it get better over time or does it get worse? It gets worse. Over time, everything winds down, everything degenerates, everything breaks down. Jesus said that the heavens would disappear, Matthew 5.18, or pass away, in Matthew 24 and 35. Psalm 102, 25-27 says, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Paul said that all of creation has been groaning under its bondage to decay. Romans 8, 10 through 
22. He talks about that at length. And it's interesting too, in Luke 17, when Jesus returns, it says it will be both day and night. Isn't that interesting? Talk about, you know, Galileo used the idea against geocentrism, the idea that the earth is the center of the universe, and the Catholic Church persecuted him. The church insisted that the Bible teaches that the earth is the center of the universe, but the Bible has other ideas on that. Uh, his idea, that idea that the earth is the center of the universe actually stemmed from studies they did on what the temple uh, layout was, and this was their imagination, not scripture. So I just want us to think about all the pitfalls that these biblical writers avoided because they were inspired by God. And use that as encouragement for us as we look at what God has told us to do. We can have faith that the Bible is from God. We can know that God gave us the information that he wants us to have in order to be saved. We need to obey what Christ told us to do. We have to confess him before men. We have to repent, that is, turn away from our sins. And we have to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins, just as all those men and women were in the book of Acts. If you haven't done that, we would encourage you to do that this morning. If you have, but you've fallen away, maybe your faith has has waned, and and we want you to, to take courage and, and get that hope back, and we would encourage you to come forward and make it known as we stand, as we sing. Thank <laughs> you.